Welcome to my podcast. In 1688, a group of French scientists came to Peking to visit the palace, to specifically visit the emperor, and they brought with them many, many books. They also brought with them 30 of the latest European scientific instruments. Included were telescopes, clocks, and compasses, and the emperor was enchanted. So enchanted was he that he invited some of them to permanently stay there as court advisors. One of the scientists praised the emperor to Louis XIV. Another one of the scientists wrote a book bearing the name of the emperor in its title and quoting this about the emperor. He is enchanted to learn new scientific knowledge and spends several hours with us every day followed by a few more of self-study. He abhors wasting time and went to bed very late. Though we researchers appeared at the palace, he had already been up and prepared for us. He readily asked our advice regarding his work and sometimes asked new questions, end quote. This emperor has been compared to the Renaissance king himself, the Sun King, Louis XIV of France, whose reign of 1643 to 1750, 1715, roughly coincides that with the emperor I'm going to talk about. And the emperor's name is Kangxi. And I believe a Renaissance man himself. Welcome again to my podcast, The Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold, and this is Episode 6, Renaissance Emperor. My last episode, I talked about Fu Lin, the previous emperor, and the father of Kangxi, and the, con- and the controversy regarding his death. One controversy that there wasn't was that he named his third son as his successor. And that third son's personal name was Aishin Jielo Xuanya. Aishin Jielo Xuanya. But I'm going to use his common and official name, Kangxi. And he was born in Beijing in May of 1654. And he had the distinction of having the longest reign of all the Qing emperors. He was only seven when his dad died and he ascended to the throne. So that's two emperor, two young emperors in a row, Kangxi and his father Fulin. He was raised by his grandmother, the Grand Empress Xiaozhuang, who was a consort of Huang Taiji, who was the second emperor and would have been Kangxi's grandfather. His grandmother was Mongolian. Kangxi's father was Manju. Kangxi's mother was Han Chinese. And Kangxi's grandmother was Mongolian. So he learned to speak Mongolian and and learned horsemanship from his grandmother. He learned archery from his Manju father. And he learned Confucianism 
from his Han Chinese mother. It was said he could read and write by the time he was five years old. And he ascended to the throne in 1661. There were four regents appointed by his father. And I mentioned this the last episode. All the regents were conservative Manju courtiers. All had extensive military experience. And those four, four were Albai, Sukasaha, Ebilong, and Swani. Don't worry about the names. And they moved fast. And I mentioned last episode that they replaced the 13 offices that Fulan had created because it was run by eunuchs who were disfavored by the Manchus. And instead they put a household office to replace the 13 offices and it was staffed with paid bond servants. But that's about all these four could agree on. They did not work well together. They were plagued by jealousy, rivalry, and power struggles. One of them died soon after Fulin died. Albai became the dominant one, a virtual dictator. Remember Duarguin? Albai even executed one of the other regents. Kangxi eventually had had enough of this, and in 1669 he took control of his own dynasty, and he was 15 years old. He had Albai arrested at a wrestling match by the wrestlers themselves. But Kangxi would not have much time to enjoy his empire because immediately or within a few years after he became emperor, the War of the Three Feudatories began. And this has also been classified as one of the Chinese civil wars. Also, there were problems with the Tungming Empire in Taiwan. I've mentioned that before as well. Throw in the Chahars, which are the indigenous tribes in Inner Mongolia, and you've got trouble. So who were and what were these feudatories? Well, let's start with the who. The first feudatory, and there was three of them, was led by a guy by the name of Wu Sangui. And you'll recall, those of you that have been listening to this from the beginning, that he was one of the Ming generals that had asked for help from Duarguan and the Manchus to defeat the rebel army of the Dashing King. For his efforts in helping the Qing overthrow the Ming dynasty, he was awarded the southwest portion of China, what is now Yunnan, in Guizhou provinces. The second fella was by the name of Shang Jirshin. And he, at this time, was an old man. His son would soon take over. And again, for Shang's help in defeating the Ming Empire, he was awarded a, a portion of southern China, which is now Guangdong province. The third feudatory was run by a, a fellow by the name of Gung Jingzhong, Gung Jingzhong. And he was the grand, his grandfather was the Ming general Cheng Zhongming. And he was awarded for his help in 
overthrowing the Ming, a portion of southeast China, which is now Fujian province. These feudatories were essentially vassal states. These guys were vassal kings. They had total autonomy. They operated as independent countries within China's jurisdiction, within their border. The size of these feudatories combined geographically would be from Texas to Georgia or the size of France and Spain put together. They levied and collected their own taxes. They pretty much created their own laws and regulations. They did what they wanted to do, but they had to pay an annual tribute to the Qing Emperor. The Kingdom of Tongming, of course, had been set up in a portion of Taiwan by a fellow by the name of Zheng Jing, and he had inherited the kingdom from his dad. And the Tongming Empire controlled the Taiwan Straits and the coastal areas of southeast China. And he wanted to reunite the feudatories, defeat the Qing, to create a revolution. These issues were invariably going to cause problems, and they did. And in September 1673, Wu Sangui rebelled. And later that same year, he declared his feudatory free and independent of China. He wanted to restore the Ming Dynasty, and he was hoping he would get the other two feudatories to join him. In this initial move, he was the only one. And he called himself great commander who summons men and horses for the pacification of all under heaven. And he quickly took Sichuan province. By March of 74, it fell. He had an estimated somewhere around 65,000 troops. Eventually, he settled in Sichuan province in Chengdu and stayed there. And this is located roughly in the middle of China. The other two were watching, and it didn't take them long to get involved. And in April of 1674, Zheng Jingzheng, the vassal king of the Fujian feudatory, made his move. And he had help from the Tongming kingdom, who had a navy. And they were encouraged by Wu Sangui's early successes. And for the first few years, they really didn't get any resistance from the Qing. And at their apex, they controlled half of China. Guangdong feudatory followed soon. And they captured Shanxi province. And things looked bad for the Qing dynasty at this point. So bad that Wu Sangui offered Kangxi terms Surrender and retire peacefully in Manzhou or die. Kangxi refused the offer. Kangxi would have been raising an army, and his army he raised was anywhere from 400,000 to 900,000 troops, and he countered. He, he countered first against Zheng Jingzhong and easily rolled him back. By 1676, just a mere three, four years into this thing, the tide had turned in the Qing's favor. In 1677, Wu Sangui had died, 
succeeded by his grandson. The other two leaders of the other two feudatories were eventually captured and they were executed. And their troops surrendered. By 1680, the Qing had reclaimed Hunan, Guizhou, Sichuan, Shanxi provinces. And in 1681, they finally captured Yunnan province and reclaimed and entered Kuming, the capital of that province, and the War of the Three Feudatories was over. Kangxi could now turn his attention on Tungming. Years prior to this encounter, Kangxi had ordered the whole entire southeast coast of China be evacuated and moved inland 40, 50 miles so they could provide no support and the Tungming Tungming Empire could, could expect no support from anybody on mainland China. How awesome is that? So, also as well, Kangxi raised a navy. And in the Battle of Penghu, I know I mentioned this, I think, in episode one, the Qing Navy defeated the Tongming Navy, and eventually Taiwan was recaptured and incorporated into China. Kangxi was very quick and harsh on some of his reprisals. The senior leaders of the feudatories and were, were executed. But for the peasants who were forced to fight, he gave them a reprieve. And this won them over. At the end, China was unified. So what happened? Why did the three feudatories lose? Several reasons. One reason is disunity. There were different leaders. There was really no central leader. There were no coordinated measures or strategy. And sometimes they even mistakenly fought each other. Another reason is they weren't decisive. Despite their very early successes, they didn't press that advantage. And they got bogged down. And they allowed a protracted war. And their people got weary. Another reason is the Qing had the geographic advantage in terms of the economic and prosperous areas. They just held better areas than did the feudatories. And the other reason was incompetence. And this showed up in the way that which they were so easily defeated. And the Qing military superiority, the mighty Qing army, the mighty Manchu army had brushed them aside. And they were able to pick these feudatories off one by one. Wu Sangui goes down in history as arrogant that he lived lavishly, that he thought mistakenly that they could count on local support as they conquered more and more of China. But that support never really came because the locals didn't trust him because he was previously allegiant to the Qing. With that out of the way, that allowed Kangxi to focus on other issues in China. And the list of accomplishments and his personal characteristics are impressive. He rebuilt Peking that was destroyed by the Qing during their conquest, careful to restore the Ming architectural wonders. He was an avid hunter. He had austere habits. He was not overly garish or lavish. 
He encouraged the production of very fine Chinese porcelain with very fine enameling with exquisite glazings. He opened four ports to foreign trade. He encouraged education and education from all around the world. He welcomed Western culture. He welcomed the arts, European refinements. He edited calligraphy. It said that documents that were presented to him, official documents that were presented to him to sign, he would review. And if the calligraphy was wrong, he would correct it. He also worked on the infrastructure in China. He identified issues with the Yellow River and the neglect of the Grand Canal. It said he was benevolent, erudite, a workaholic, gentle when necessary, but brutal when he had to be. The Yellow River had been for years neglected and was prone to flooding. In 1677, he deployed civil engineers to address this issue, and by 1683, they had repaired the Yellow River, dredged it, and put new embankments up. The Grand Canal. Let me just say this before I get into what he did with the Grand Canal. The Grand Canal is the longest, oldest artificial river in the world. It was built long before Kangxi, long before the Qing. But this was an engineering marvel built by the Chinese. It roughly runs north and south, connecting the Yellow and the Yellow Rivers and the Yangtze Rivers so that they can move around all around China through, uh, through navigable rivers. Ingenious. It ran to the seaboard for, to the south and north to Peking. Kangxi repaired it. Trade flourished under him. He was enthralled with geometry, astronomy, maps. He published the first Chinese atlas in 1717. He was fascinated with European paintings and European art. He appreciated Western medicine. There's a story that he was cured of malaria at the age of 40 by two European priests using frozen quinine. He built a lab at the Forbidden City that produced Western medications. He made his imperial household get smallpox vaccinated. He encouraged the rest of China to do the same. Remember, his father died of smallpox. And also remember, he had smallpox as a boy and was one of the reasons why he was chosen as the emperor because he survived it. He survived it and his face was scarred from it. Kangxi also never raised taxes during his reign. He had a close relationship with many Jesuit priests and allowed them to build a Roman Catholic church in Peking, grateful for the malaria cure. He had some Catholic priests as advisors. In 1692, he issued an edict allowing Catholic churches and legalizing the practice of Christianity in China. After Taiwan was defeated, he ordered the repopulation of the coastal cities that he had ordered abandoned. One can only imagine that massive project. With the southern part of China, Taiwan, and infrastructure matters in tow, he now turns his attention to China's northern border. And for many decades, Russian settlers, Cossacks, hunters, had been impinging on Manju lands, 
going in there and hunting. And this was particularly troublesome. And this would have been the area around the Aber River Valley or also called the Heilongjiang River Valley. And by the way, the Heilongjiang River is the 10th largest river in the world. In 1651, the Russians built a fort at Albizan and staffed it with Cossacks. And this would be the next drama that would play out in the story of China and the story of Kangxi. The next episode, I will continue my discussion of Kangxi and his reign. And there's more succession drama to come. And with that, thank you. It's been my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>